Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ, David Fiorazzo and Mary Danielson. Welcome back. Thank you so much. From vacation. Yeah. I, I, I have to look up that word in the dictionary. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> a vac, vac, how do you, I'll have to figure out how to spell it's it first. Greek. It's yeah. Greek. It's <laughs> Greek. All right. Well, it's good to have you back. Um, friends, we got a great podcast today. If you love defending the faith and apologetics and exposing some of these deceptions within Christianity... Um, we're going to dive into some really important topics with Natasha Crane in just a minute. But I want to read Jeremiah seventeen seven and 8. Uh, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Blessed are those who trust the Lord. Jeremiah seventeen seven and 8. So let's bring in Natasha Crane today, national speaker, author, blogger, podcaster. She, one of her passions is to help Christians think more clearly about holding to a biblical worldview in the midst of an increasingly secular culture. Now, she's written... Apologetics books for parents, talking with your kids about Jesus, talking with your kids about God, keeping your kids on God's side. She also has her podcast, the Natasha Crane Podcast, and she co-hosts a weekly podcast with Elisa Childers, who we just had on a week or two ago, the Unshaken Faith Podcast. Her recent book is called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. We talked about that last time she was on with us, and we've got a lot of important things to digest and really discern today with Natasha. Hey, welcome back to Stand Up for the Truth, Natasha Crane. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you this morning. Great to talk with you, too. Uh, Mayor, do you want to launch the first grenade? <laughs> first grenade. Uh, I, I, oh, boy. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you Let's just tell me about the grenade. Well, it, it, is, it is stand up for the truth, so no it topic is. off limits. We're, All right, I'm ready. Okay, <laughs> Natasha, your book is just it's so practical. I enjoyed it immensely. Um you start out in chapter one. I'm just gonna go, I'm just gonna go for the throat here. Uh, you say worldview matters, and I couldn't agree more. And you talk about the summer of 2020, which is of course when the world kinda just, uh, you know, talk about grenades. <laughs> uh oh. Alright? Yeah, let's go. There. Um, you wrote an article on your website called Five Ways Christians Are Getting Swept Into a Secular Worldview mm. in This Cultural Moment. And, um, uh, you say, um, I address several areas in which Christians need to be more discerning as we respond to emotionally charged cultural issues. Well, anyway, um, the article went viral and was liked and shared on social media more than 277,000 times, which is just incredible. And so I want to ask you, uh, what, what was it about that article um, that, that hit a nerve with people? What, can you just tell us, what were some of the responses as we start to talk about um, worldviews and why that matters? Yeah, well, I, I think that that was a time when there was so much going on, so 
there's so much emotion that a lot of Christians kind of started jumping on some bandwagons with respect to social justice and secular ideas of social justice. But I think the reason that this article hit a nerve is that a lot of people didn't realize that was happening. Mm -hmm. So we have Mm -hmm. plenty of examples in today's culture of where Christians kind of are are fully aware of what they're doing when they say, well, I'm going to turn away from this part of the historic faith or that part of the historic faith. But in this case, in in that summer when everything was going on, a lot of Christians sort of naively embraced ideas without even realizing it that were not consistent with biblical truth. And so before that time, I had written very specifically and always stayed in the lane as writing about apologetics for parents. But at that time, I said, you know, there, there's some stuff here that needs to be said. And so I started to write some blog pieces about how Christians were getting swept into a secular worldview, bringing in these ideas from the Black Lives Matter organization mm-hmm. and, and related ideas. And I got emails for weeks from people who were just saying, I couldn't quite put my finger on why these things were problematic. Yes. So thank you for articulating it. So I think that that's what hit the nerve is just trying to bring some clarity to things that were flipping into people's worldviews, but they weren't quite sure what the issue was yet. And then you did a follow-up, too, about how it's impacting them spiritually, and I think it maybe took a little time for people to to just uh, take the temperature of how these changes were impacting them. You know, people say, well, you know, people were hiding their heads in the sand about what was going on. I think it was just shock and people having to take the time to actually review and do some some internal inventories to see how that summer and life ever since has been impacting us spiritually. So did you get as much response on Facebook with your uh, questionnaire about people and how they were assessing their own cost to their spiritual lives? Well, there were. It's been a while. It's been uh, you know, almost three years since since that. So I don't remember exactly that Facebook post, but I I know that there were people for weeks after that, as I continued to write about this, who were starting to say, "Yes, I'm looking around. And I'm seeing my friends get pulled into this because it wasn't just a moment of confusion. It was continued confusion. And I think that's right. where we still see this happening today. That people who got pulled into secular social justice ideas, sometimes they're very well-meaning, or a lot of times they're very well-meaning, right? They became Mm -hmm. aware of some of the problems in society and how people were feeling, but then they looked to the wrong solution and the wrong way of analyzing that. Instead of going to the Bible and saying, well, here's what the Bible would Mm -hmm. say about justice and how we should respond and why the world is the way it is, they're looking to ideas that came from critical theory, which mm-hmm. is a whole other kind of idea than what the Bible would teach. Mm-hmm. And so we still see today the effects of that, that a lot of Christians did not leave those ideas. And instead of saying, oh, wait, I need to gain clarity about mm-hmm. what just happened, mm-hmm. they said, I'm going to go this other direction. And oh. so we still see a lot of confusion about that in culture oh. today. Yes, and I remember that your article at that time, I was researching it too, it was very helpful because I was trying to do my due diligence and and find out what was behind all this. And like you said, well-meaning Christians, they jumped on what we now know is the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation Network bandwagon. It's Marxist ideology without researching the movement, the agenda, or most importantly, Natasha Crane, its worldview and the leader's worldview. And it was problematic. What I found is that it divided a lot of people in the church. It divided believers because they failed to contrast, for example, uh, Christianity and Marxism. Uh, those are two things you have right. to look at and understand the worldviews. And um, so have you seen that divide 
get worse since that time? Is that one of the things we can point to as a catalyst? Well, one of the things that I, I find interesting with respect to that question is that this Marxist ideology that we're seeing just spread out in so many areas today with LGBTQ ideas, gender ideology specifically, yeah. with all of the, the racial movements, all of these things, it's very spread out. But what you see is that there are a lot of Christians who would not go along with some of the LGBT and gender ideology issues. And they would say, oh, that's, you know, that's far left. That's very progressive. We wouldn't do that. But then when it comes to the racial issues, they embrace a lot of elements of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And so you see kind of this middle ground of people who are saying, well, we're not going to go all the way over there, but we can still use critical race theory as a lens through which to Mm -hmm. see these societal problems because they don't see that that is so inconsistent with what the Bible teaches with the ideas of what's called anti-racism today, for example, which is is basically let's be racist in order to get rid of racism. <laughs> yeah. So there are all these ideas, and there are all these ideas that come along with CRT that Christians are accepting, and I think that that creates a pretty big divide today mm. uh, amongst Christians who do hold to the historic Christian faith and the authority of the Bible, but they are still enamored with a lot of these ideas of racial justice. And I think that's the trickiest thing with respect to all of this, because like I said, there are um, plenty of churches that are far, far left that have the drag queen story hours, and they're fully embracing everything that would be opposed to what the Bible teaches, and they wouldn't even say that they adhere to the authority of the Bible. But it's what's tricky is when you have churches who hold to the historic Christian faith and believers who hold to the Bible and its authority, but then they're also holding some very errant ideas of what justice means because of this. And so that causes a significant divide and confusion. What we're going to talk about in the next segment, Natasha, is something you alluded to, how to discern a church website and um, what a church puts on there sometimes is not accurate. Uh, when it comes to what they teach and what they uphold in their services or what they, uh, you know, tell the, the people in that church. Um, we'll talk about that and how to find a good church. But another thing we wanted to veer to is since Mayor started off with the worldview, which is very important, we think of George Barna and all the research they've been doing for years and uh, great, great, great studies from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And they recently, Barna was quoted as saying, the biblical worldview is shuffling toward the edge of the cliff. And there was a first study um, of Americans' worldview since the post the lockdown, since the post-lockdown era. And um, according to the CRC, the worldview has now declined to a historic low of 4% in America. So I would love your response to that and... I mean, where do we go? I mean, we, we can't see it go anywhere but off the cliff. Is there a way to slow this? Well, I, I think what's important to consider is that when you look at the Pew Forum and the research that they've done on religious trends in America, what you see is that about 65% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. <laughs> so when we talk about a biblical worldview specifically, just to make sure everyone's tracking on the same page with us, we're talking about not how someone identifies, but if you actually give them dozens of questions, which the researchers do that you're talking about, to ascertain what they actually believe. So ask about their beliefs directly, not how they identify themselves. Exactly. And then the researchers group those beliefs together to identify yeah. after the fact, okay, how many people have a quote-unquote, biblical worldview, where they're 
their beliefs and their behaviors overwhelmingly line up with what the Bible teaches. When they do that, the most recent the most recent data says that that's about four percent of Americans. So that gap to me is something every Christian must understand. Sixty five percent of Americans identify as Christian. Four percent now have beliefs and behaviors that would line up with what the Bible teaches. So it's not so much. I think sometimes when people hear these numbers from Barna and they, they hear four percent or it was six percent before, I think that we have a tendency to to think, well, okay, and then the rest of the culture is atheist. Well, that's you know that's not true. Mm. The vast majority mm. of people actually two out of three would claim to be a Christian in some way. And so my personal ministry and my focus isn't so much on going out to the people who have no affiliation whatsoever with Christianity, but to help shore up the people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian in some way, and to help people think through, well, what should that mean? You're a Christian, then we need to look back to the Bible. Why do we believe that the Bible's God's Word? And if we believe the Bible's God's Word, then what are the implications of that? What should we be drawing about that? about the nature of reality. So I, I think that we have to keep in mind that as we see these numbers go down, hmm. those numbers are going down in terms of people having beliefs that line up with the Bible, but there are, are many millions of people out there who still identify as Christian, hmm. and we need to help more Christians understand why they need to take the Bible to be their authority and understand what the Bible teaches. Amen. I, I love that approach. Thank you, Natasha, because some of us were getting a little discouraged by seeing these numbers consistently <laughs> go down. And when Barna said off the cliff, no, no, we're not going. Uh, um, but let's, let's, let's open up a new can uh, here. Um, I was watching the Super Bowl a month ago. And speaking of, you know, how people can veer off of even another Jesus and create a new Jesus or identify with something that's not even biblical. Um, there is a campaign called He Gets Us. And I know we're going back a little bit because you wrote an article in October about this. And sure enough, we saw the TV commercials leading up to the big game and then during the Super Bowl. I honestly, before God as my witness, I was watching. I just glanced at the TV during the commercials and I saw a, t- a commercial. I thought it was a Black Lives Matter a social justice commercial. Mm-hmm. I thought it was something like that. And sure enough, it was for, for He Gets Us. So, Natasha, I want to go to your post you made on Facebook, and you said, I've never received as much hate mail on anything I've ever said or written as I have about my article, Seven Problems with the He Gets Us campaign. Now, for a lot of people listening, Natasha, maybe they are thinking, oh, yeah, I did see those commercials, uh, and they can't really pinpoint again what was wrong with what they were presenting? I would love to get your thoughts, and maybe we'll go through some of the points in the article. So the He Gets Us campaign, its a, like you said, it's hard for a lot of times for people to pinpoint what's wrong, and so that's why I was getting the hate mail, because people were saying, <laughs> how can you complain? How can wow. you complain about Jesus' name being out there during the Super Bowl? I'm just happy that Jesus' name is being proclaimed. Right. And my response to that in the simplest way is, what if Jesus was being proclaimed as a cat? that everyone was, you know, telling us during the Super Bowl, Jesus is actually a cat. Did you know he's a cat? You wouldn't be celebrating that. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Jesus is not a cat. 
right? This is just a logical point. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't just be celebrating because Jesus' name is proclaimed in some way at all. It matters how his name is proclaimed. Is his name proclaimed in a way that glorifies him because it's consistent with what the Bible teaches? So that is the lens through which I think we need to see this. And the the short answer, and we can get into this a lot more deeply, but the short answer to the problem with it is that he gets this. It's all about a very human Jesus. It's all about Jesus getting us, not we getting Jesus. Yes. And that's a problem because he is presented as a good moral example, which is very much the Jesus of progressive Christianity. He's a great mm-hmm. example. He's so loving. He is, um, you know, just this wonderful guy that we want to hang out with and he would hate politics too. That's kind of the, <laughs> the idea that you get from, from the website. And the fact that Jesus gets us, if you take that away from the context of his identity as mm-hmm. God himself, is utterly meaningless. Every person who has ever lived knows what it's like to be a human. So there's no point in asking, mm-hmm. you know, well, was Jesus tired or did Jesus get fed up with politics? Did Jesus this or that? Unless he's actually God. That's what makes all right. of this relevant. Because if he's God himself and he gets us, that's an amazing fact. Yes. It's an amazing fact of the incarnation. But if he was just another human, a great example, I don't care if he gets me. George <laughs> Washington could get me too. And so that's a, that's really the, the bottom line on it. Mm-hmm. And. A lot of Christians, you know, the, probably the most common response that I got in terms of pushback would be Christians who went to the About Us page. And this has changed over time. They did update the page over the last several months, I think, in response to feedback that they had gotten. Uh-huh. But the most recent uh, iteration of it, you know, it, it says that we're led by Jesus fans and followers. And it talks about how they also incorporate a lot of other diverse perspectives and backgrounds and experiences in their work. And then later on the page, it says, though we believe he was what Christians call fully God and fully man, that may not be what you believe. We're simply inviting you to explore how things might be different if more follow- people followed his example. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Christians came at that and they said, well, look, these are genuine Christians. They believe in the deity of Jesus. And I think we have to, again, understand, what if they had the most orthodox about us page in the world, but they put out a campaign that was talking about Jesus being a cat? We'd still have a problem, right? Because they are misleading people on how they're presenting Jesus, whether they believe the right things or not. So I was primarily looking at this from a marketing and Mm -hmm. advertising perspective. That's my background professionally and saying this is a problem with a campaign. But it's, it's sort of a naivety, I think, we have as Christians to think, well, there, there are people who love Jesus, too. See, look at the deity of Jesus that they believe in on the About Us page. Mm-hmm. That's neither here nor there mm-hmm. with respect to what they're putting out. But even so, I would say that if you get into other pages on their site, it is much less clear what they, as an organization, believe. They don't exactly. have a statement of faith. Yep. And um, they actually say in another place on their website that they actively involve the perspectives of people who don't believe what Christians believe. So there are levels and layers of concerns about this, but that's sort of the the summary. Well, they also, they also talk about how ideologically defensive we've all become and the campaign, which it does, Mm -hmm. reinforces the problematic idea that Jesus's followers have Jesus all wrong. And they, and they know this how exactly. Um, you know, but they say at the heart of the conflicts is a fundamental disagreement about what it means to be good. I mean, the, the website is absolute nonsense. I want to ask you something here. You know, Christianity, I'm sort of piggybacking with all this. Christianity is so, seen more and more as negative in this culture. And that, your point number three yes. drives that home. And this trend contributes, um, 
um, and, and, and you also say in your book, until recently, people still embrace the morals or ethics of a Judean Christian worldview. And I want to quote Francis Schaeffer about this shift. Because I think this has something to do with what we're talking about. He says, Christianity is no longer providing you the consensus for our society and the consensus upon which our law is based. That's not to say America is not ever a Christian nation in the sense that most citizens were Christian, nor in the sense that our laws or social life was an expression of Christian truth. But until recent decades, something did exist which can rightly be called a Christian consensus or ethos which gave a distinctive shape to Western society. But now that consensus is gone. Freedoms it brought with it are being destroyed before our eyes. Humanism is coming. The humanist worldview is coming to its natural conclusion. And we're left with arbitrary decisions of those who hold legal and political power. And he wrote that in 1984. Wow. And that's just an incredible mm-hmm. quote about about what is happening. I mean, that, that consensus uh, about morals and ethics is just gone. And here we are. We're just laid bare here. And I think this campaign, he gets us, really uh, piggybacks on that. Yeah, it's amazing that that's written in 1984. And it's shocking. It tells us that, you know, in some sense, this is not new, but we're just mm-hmm. seeing different manifestations of it. But I, I think that the whole idea of how values and the consensus on values is going away, I think that is really what we're, we're seeing today that is so shocking to people. There, long ago, people in America were throwing off all the doctrinal distinctives about Christianity and not necessarily holding to a biblical worldview in the past. We didn't have this glorious time period where 90% of people would have a biblical worldview if that's, you know, what Dr. Barna went out and researched, mm-hmm. but they had the values, like mm-hmm. you read in that quote. Yeah. But today, people, that was kind of a hangover from the history of Christianity in America. People were still, still holding on to the values, even though there was nothing that was grounding them. Right. So, it, you know, the greatest irony of all is that what's so important today for so many people on the, the left is social justice, right? But social justice has a lot of uh, assumptions in it that we take for granted that you don't have without a biblical worldview. For example, the inherent equality of all people. That's a starting point, right? But you don't get that unless you have a biblical worldview where we have a creator who made people to be image bearers. We are all created in the image of God, which means that we all have inherent value and equal value. That's a starting point for justice, right? But when you take away all of those Judeo-Christian foundations, you don't have that anymore. How do you know that there is a creator or that people have equal value if you get rid of that? So that, I think, is is an interesting thing that we see today, is that people are holding on to these values that we cherish, like justice and equality and human rights, but they have no objective foundation for them anymore. Mm-hmm. So another point you made, by the way, friends, we're speaking with Natasha Crane, author and speaker, and about her article, Seven Problems with the He Gets Us campaign. And I think these are underlying, This is, the issue is discernment. The issue is discernment here as Christians discerning some of the messages we're seeing out there in culture. And I love the point that you made that the campaign, number five, the campaign characterizes the so-called culture war in terms of secular social justice rather than underlying worldview differences. Please uh, share more thoughts on that, Natasha. Well, when it says, you know, there's a page and it says Jesus is fed up with politics, too, which I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And it says Jesus lived in the middle of a culture war. And though the political systems were different, the greed, hypocrisy and oppression different groups used to get their way were very similar. And then they use hashtag activist and justice 
and real life. But at, at the end of the day, you know, th- when we're talking about culture wars, this is ultimately about a war between worldviews. And I kind of think of this as uh, icebergs. You know, if you have a, an iceberg, there's this giant mass of ice under the water, and all you see is kind of the tip that goes above the water if you're st- if you're standing above the waterline, right? So a lot of people look at this and they say, oh, well, you know, it's just different between, you know, politics or it's just different because we have different ideas of justice. But underneath those ideas of justice are these giant icebergs that are related to worldview. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Underneath a biblical view of justice is this iceberg of the Bible and everything <laughs> that the Bible has told us about who God is and mm-hmm. who we are as people, what our relationship is, what the problem is, why are things broken? How do we make wrong things right? How do we define mm-hmm. right and wrong? All of that would be defined by God's Word, because that is the Word of God Himself, who's the creator and sustainer of the universe, and therefore, it's authoritative on these issues. But then, if you look at the secular social justice iceberg, it's not just you know, some ideas of, oh, well, let's let's try justice this way, or let's do, you know, this, let's go in this direction. It's far more than that. Underneath that, you have this whole critical theory iceberg, which I know you've talked a lot about, and a critical theory looking at the world through these oppressor and, and oppressed lenses and defining oppression based on a standard of how people feel and about power dynamics and about the norms and values and expectations of society. All these are part of this huge package of critical theory that goes back to Marx, ultimately, in the 1800s. And so when you look at this and you look at these competing icebergs, most people just look at the little peaks above the water and think, well, we just have some different ways of looking at justice. But that's not really the case. There are giant worldview differences that underlie those peaks that Christians need to deeply understand and get familiar with. Number seven, your final point in this article, and I'm just going to say I love that you said in your blog post, not going to stop <laughs> when someone says, hey, it, please stop writing or speaking, because they didn't agree with you, right? <laughs> that's, what, that's what they do now. They don't want to debate. Yeah. They don't, Can you give me more information? What brought you to that conclusion? They don't want to do that. They just say, please stop speaking. <laughs> Let's just shut you down. Um, you right. S- number yeah, seven. I, I actually got an email from someone. That, I actually got the email from someone saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Please stop writing and speaking, please. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? But I love the, here's the, I think the bottom line you say at the end, truth matters. It is not disrespectful to biblically critique a presentation of Jesus. And Natasha Crane, you, this article says hundreds of churches, churches have signed on to this He Gets Us campaign. And there is no theological criteria or statement of faith that churches must adhere to in order to take part. When So when people want to get more information, they could be led further away from the biblical Jesus. And share your final thoughts on that. Right. It's and This is, at the end of the day, no matter how solid their beliefs are, whether they are or not, and no matter what their intentions are with the campaign itself, they are funneling people to a vast array of churches mm. that they they say, quote, we hope that all churches that are aligned with the He Gets This campaign will participate in. This includes multiple denominational and non-denominational church affiliations, Catholic and Protestant churches of various sizes, ethnicities, languages, and geography. Mm. And so they actually say, there's an, an interview um, with one of the leaders of this, and they say they're uh, is no theological criteria or statement of faith that you have to mm-hmm. adhere to in order to take part. 
Uh, they've since updated uh, their uh, their statement about this on the website of to course. say that it that <laughs> in general, I believe it says the spirit and intent would be churches that would agree with the Lausanne Covenant. Um, but that came after the fact, and there have been a lot of anecdotes from people who have kind of gone in to test this and asked if they could be uh, directed to a church that's affirming, for example, of LGBT identities. Oh. And uh, and they were. They were sent to uh, very progressive churches. And so there is some question about exactly what is going on there. Yeah. And if you are going to funnel people to churches, you have a big responsibility to make sure you're funneling them to places where they can learn more about the real Jesus and who Jesus is, not just a church that's going to tell them what they already want to hear. Do they want to hear truth or do they want to hear whatever happens to agree with their own beliefs. That's a huge concern for me about this campaign. Amen. Amen. So we've got just a minute and a half left, and um, we're not going to go to another topic, but I do want to mention we have Natasha Crane on her latest book, Faithfully Different. I really encourage you to get it. And by the way, Natasha, congrats to uh, get on Focus on the Family. Saw that interview. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad uh, people like you are getting out there instead of some of the well, I'll, I'll put it nicely. Those who have drifted from the traditional understanding of the biblical faith. Hey, I love the way you end it, uh, the article. Yes, Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. When you remove half the picture of his identity, as this campaign does, you give people the understanding they want, but not a fuller understanding they need. And they need to know that Jesus came to forgive their sins, but they repentance is required. And, um, yeah, it's, it's more than just God getting us. If he created us, I think, of course, God is able to understand us if he created us. So, yeah, it's kind of – anyway, there will be more. There will be more movements like this and, and campaigns. Just, friends, be discerning. Test all spirits. When we come back, we're going to talk about a very important question we get from people. How do you find a good church – and Natasha and Elisa Childers recently did a podcast called How to Discern a Church Website. And there are all kinds of examples, and we're going to talk about that, plus a little bit on avoiding progressive Christianity when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Did you know that the Stand Up for the Truth podcast is 100% produced by the Q90FM radio staff in Green Bay, Wisconsin? Most people don't. When you support Stand Up for the Truth, your tax-deductible donations fund our ministry's operations, programming, and outreach ministries. Stand Up for the Truth, Q90FM, and Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Thank you for your prayers and support. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth. Okay, a couple weeks ago we interviewed Jason Wolford over at Mission Cry, and they collect Bibles and ship them to orphanages, evangelist pastors, missionaries. They have distribution centers around the, the world and over in Appleton, Wisconsin, our neck of the woods, there's a Calvary Chapel in Appleton that is collecting Bibles, new or used. A lot of us have Bibles on the shelf, friends. Hello. Or Christian books. And when I say Christian books, I don't, I mean biblical worldview. I have to emphasize we don't want Joel Osteen books. We don't want positive thinking. We don't want psychology. We don't want self-help. We want Christian books and Bibles. If you have those, if you're in the area and they're in good condition, drop them off. 
And that's for the, another couple weeks at Calvary Chapel Appleton. Do they need to know anything else? No, I don't think so. Okay. The, the criteria is if, if you don't want the book and it, it's not any good to you, it's not going to be any good to anyone else. So mm, just yeah. you know, building on what you said. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so Mayor, we're going to in a couple minutes talk about how to discern a church website. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want you wanted to talk about something from Natasha's book, and I want to start with secularism. Yeah, I started to really think about secularism while I read your book because ever since I've been a believer, uh, I would hear, well, you know, that's secular music, or that's a secular film, and it's all about what you do or what you don't do or listen to or whatever. I never gave the definition a lot of thought. Now, uh, humans are spiritual beings, uh, so there's no spiritual vacuum. So everyone believes in something, and every single person has a worldview. It starts when they're very young. Uh, you know, when does that worldview become a religion, whether it's humanism or even, you know, self-idolatry? What Could you tell us, Natasha, what is... Give us a good definition of secularism. Well, it's one of those tricky words because, you know, if you ask 100 people, 100 people will give you 100 different definitions. (laughs) It depends on what they mean, and it's been used differently throughout history as well. So when I talk about secularism with the ISM in my book, I'm talking about that as a worldview. So a lot of times people think of secular as, lacking religion. So they think of it as, well, this is a neutral kind of mm-hmm. perspective on things. You know, secular, like secular music, for example, somebody might just mean, well, it has nothing to do with religion. So we have it ingrained in us to think that secular means neutral, but there is no neutrality when it right. comes to a worldview. Every single one of us has a worldview. We have, whether we're conscious about it or not in terms of developing our answers, we all have answers to questions like what we think about where we came from and who we are and where we're going and why we're here and is there an objective meaning to life, these kinds of questions. And so when we look at secularism as a worldview, what it ultimately is, and I make the case for this in the book leading up to this point, but at the end of the day, what it ultimately is, is a worldview based on the authority of the self. It's not a worldview that looks to the authority of a given religion mm, and or God. Mm-hmm. So as Christians who, uh, who seek to have a biblical worldview, our authority is outside of ourselves. Regardless of what we think or feel, we look and say, well, I'm going with what God says, because I believe that he truly is the creator of the day of the universe who has revealed these truths in the Bible. So that's authoritative for me. It's outside of myself. The people who have a secular worldview, they might actually believe in God. In fact, 90% of Americans believe in some kind of God or higher power. So overwhelmingly, we are a spiritual people, like you said. But those that 90% of people, most of them do not believe that there is any kind of revealed word from God. Hmm. So it's okay for secular culture, from secular culture's perspective, to say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I believe in God or a higher power. But where people get offended, and they're offended by you if you're a Christian, is if you believe that you can know specifically who that God is, because he's revealed truth in the Bible. That's what people don't like. A generic God is perfectly right. fine, because that has no right. requirements for you in your life. Right, We can go on just kind of comfortably believing there's a God we can talk to when we want, but it's totally different if you think that, oh no, God has revealed these things in the Bible, and there are requirements of us, and there are truths that we need to adhere to. So secularism ultimately is, I'm the authority on what's true about reality. I'm going to figure those things out, and no one can tell me differently. That's so good. Thank you. Right, And we may have a secular government in the United States, but that doesn't mean we can't uh, let our faith inform our politics or how we interact with the culture. 
So in other words, you know, individuals can bring their beliefs into the public square. That There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you use the pie crust example, which I thought was spectacular. You you talk about you can bring your empty pie crust, but don't you dare fill it with cherries or blueberries, because now you're you're bringing something that is um, not secular to the public. But we are allowed to do that. But that's where the rub is. A lot of times people don't want you to bring your cherry pie to the public square because now. Right. Right. So what secular neutrality? What can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. With the whole pie crust analogy, you know, people think that there's some kind of worldview neutral pie crust that we can all run in society and we can all keep our religious fillings at home. But when you really dig into it, what would be in that pie crust, right? What, what kind of things are truly independent of a worldview? They're not because every society functions from some idea of what is good or bad, right, right or right. wrong, harmful, helpful, what is just, what is unjust. So if you look at all of those big questions that society functions around, they all assume something about these definitions. You can't have a worldview-neutral pie crust. Right. And our country, and it's so often misunderstood, unfortunately, by Christians, especially when it means that we're a secular nation. The United States was the first country to be explicitly structured in a quote-unquote secular way. But what that meant is that there would be no established state church that we were funding, that was authoritative, here comes that word again, authoritative, mm-hmm. for public life in terms of what you have to believe or what you have to do. There would be no established church. That was the meaning of secular. Secular was never meant to, to mean by our founding fathers mm-hmm. that we shouldn't bring our worldviews to bear on how we vote and how we influence society. It meant that the that government was not going to tell you how to do that, that you have the freedom to exercise that and that everyone would be bringing their worldviews to bear mm-hmm. on these issues. So we, we can get in a really bad spot as Christians if we think we need to remove ourselves yes. from society because we live in a quote-unquote secular country. That's not what secular means. Right. This, is, this is a drum that I'm beating all the time because <laughs> when we you. take ourselves out of the public square, what we do is we say, well, I guess I'm not needed to bring salt and light anymore mm. in a public way. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. problem. Second biggest lie in America, the separation of church and state. Um, Natasha, I love what you said about the the authority of the self. Yesterday we read an article on this 37-year-old cultural influencer and and social media influencer. She's got, I don't remember what her name was, 154,000 followers on Instagram alone. She went on a me moon a honeymoon by herself. She went to, to London and Italy, and she literally went. She said, I'm not going to wait. And I'm, you know, I've been I was in a bad relationship for five years. I'm just going to have my own honeymoon and really make sure I enjoy it. And then she said she got thousands of responses from women who said, I'm going to have a me moon as well. So they're going on honeymoons by themselves. So I think the authority of the self, the Bible does not say love thyself. In fact, it says in the last days, when it talks about uh, you know the times that are coming, it says men and that means mankind will be lovers of self. We talked about that, which is fascinating. It plays right into this idea of secularism. Is it redundant to say secular progressivism? Is that redundant? Well, there's a high correlation, I think, between secularism and progressivism, because ultimately if the secularism is about the authority of the self, then you're going to be inclined, ironically, to be very influenced by culture. Because if everyone on their own authority of the self is looking around to kind of see what all the other authority of the self are doing, you will, ironically, see that people start to gravitate to the same ideas because we are very influenced by what's popular, right? 
And so progressivism specifically is a, a political ideology that we see today about what is considered to be progress, which yeah. often is not progressive at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you could be, you could have a secular worldview, your authority of the self, and still hold a political ideology that's at odds with progressivism of popular culture, uh, but that is um, less likely, I think, to happen than when you have secularism and progressivism together, because you're just going back to yourself mm-hmm. and you're looking around and saying, well, this is what's popular, and I'm going to go with that. Things become popular because we like them, right? right? So at the end of the day, progressivism emerges, I think, in the types of progressive ideas we see, because people, when they're left to the authority of the self, like those ideas. And so those are the ones that become the popular ones. Mm. Well, and wokeness or progressivism is is a worldview, obviously, and it's also leaven. I think it's going to absolutely destroy the church and rot it from within if the Lord tarries. Um, I, you know, the deconstruction of the faith is going on through Ooh, let's talk about that through woke wokeness yes. uh, in the church itself. Yeah, you talk about deconstruction, and a lot of people I don't think understand what that is. They they don't think well, people just don't simply. Maybe fall away gradually. They, mm. they, some, some people actually purposefully make an effort to deconstruct what they've learned in church or from the Bible. Tell us about that, Natasha. Well, deconstruction is the idea that it's basically about authority of the self, right? It's the same thing where we say, you know what, I'm going to toss out everything that I've ever learned, anything that is externally constraining my beliefs, and I'm just going to figure out what I believe. I'm going to find the ideas that I, I believe to be helpful and harmful, and I'm going to hold on to what is helpful and loving according to my own definition. That tends to be the lens through which people see deconstruction. Sometimes, I always have to have this caveat, sometimes what people mean when they say they're deconstructing is simply kind of a naive version of that, which is, you know, I just, I'm not sure what I believe anymore, so I just need to investigate things more. But that's not really what most people mean. If you come across a social media influencer, for example, who's talking about deconstructing their faith, and they're using this as like a positive thing, not an evaluative concept, but rather let's deconstruct, (laughs) hashtag deconstruction, you know that these are people who are proactively saying you need to get away from Mm -hmm. any kind of external constraints Mm -hmm. on morality, on what you believe to be true, any of those things, you need to look at you. You need to see what you find to be true and helpful. And so that's uh, that's usually what is meant by these deconstruction movements. There are actually courses now Mm -hmm. to help you deconstruct. (laughs) So again, it's it's not just an analysis anymore. Now you have people who are proactively saying, go deconstruct your faith because it's not right the way that it is. And this Which l- ultimately, is, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because right. if deconstruction is all about getting to the authority of the self and finding what you believe, then how can anyone come along and say, well, if you believe what the Bible says, you're wrong. Right. <laughs> if there's right. no Bible and there's no authority for what's true, then even if I happen to believe what's in the Bible, you should be able to say, oh, well, that's that's good for you. That's, like, your that's truth. never okay. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. that's your truth. But, <laughs> but your truth is never okay if you think it's God's truth. Then it has to be wrong. Well, and you also sure. talk about deconversions now. So people deconstruct and then they, they go through these deconversion classes or they go see a counselor. I know of some people who are doing this and, wow. and they're going to see a counselor to, for deconversions. What? Um, I, it's, it's a fairly popular thing, I guess, and it's to get out from under that yoke of what they, what they believe is just, um, a bondage or this, un, uh, being under God's. The uh, Father? Uh, the the patriarchy? Yes, yes. <laughs> the authoritativeness. Yes. They want no, 
you ain't the boss of me, is yeah, how, yeah, yeah. how my husband puts it. Yeah. You ain't the boss of me. They don't want that in their lives. And then they talk right. about how free they feel now because now I'm the boss of me and it's just a wonderful life. Deconversion. Yes, and there's, she has a whole chapter on that, deconstruction leading to deconversions. And then you have a chapter on doubt, which I think is a must-read for anyone who's struggling with doubt uh, while they're living out a Christian worldview. And to me, if you don't wake up in the morning sometimes and go, oh, my goodness, what – you know, what do I actually believe? I mean, I think that happens to people, and mm. I, I think that that's not the, uh, the evil. I think uh, doubts are not evil. No. They're not the opposite of faith, right? I mean, what what causes people to, to deconvert, and do you think they'll ever... It's like an anti-testimony, right? Do you think they ever realize they, at some well, point... Well, were they converted, truly converted yes, in the first yes, place? Yes, that's a question that, that should too. be asked. What do you think, Natasha? Well, there are a lot of different things that cause people to deconstruct or ultimately deconvert. And so it's it's very hard to to say in in a broad sense what mm-hmm. causes that, but I do think that there is a lot of that cultural pressure today that is putting that is put on people because they hear everyone else around them has these doubts and everyone's deconstructing and, and this is this cool thing you have <laughs> yeah, right. you know hashtag exvangelical and yeah. you have all of <laughs> yes. these different things going on around you and unfortunately and I and I don't I don't say this is the church's fault. But I do say, unfortunately, many churches do not prepare people adequately, especially mm-hmm. youth, for the kinds of challenges that they're going to encounter today. Ultimately, that's at the parents' feet. I mean, we are the primary disciples of our kids. And so between church and the parents, if we're not preparing youth for the culture and saying, hey, these are the challenges you're going to face. This is what people are going to tell you. Here's why there's good belief- reason to believe that Christianity is true. These are the challenges and how to answer them. If you're not doing those, things, then what happens is you are raising kids who are ripe for deconstruction movement. Mm. Because when they come along and they see a popular influencer, and there have been lots of these, like well-known people that they will follow on YouTube or singers, whoever it might be, and then those people come along and say, you know what, I've been a Christian for longer than you've been alive, and there are a lot of questions I've had. No one can answer those questions, and so I am walking away from my faith, or I'm deconstructing. Well, most kids are going to say, oh, wow, you know, I I haven't even been a Christian that long, and I don't know how to answer that question. There must not be good answers to those questions. They don't know. Hmm. And so they're going to listen to what these people say, that there are no good answers, and then they start Hmm. questioning. And then when you mix that in with the social pressure of the coolness of deconstructing, now you just have a situation where people are ripe for wanting to deconstruct and for questioning their faith. So we have to, and by we, I mean primarily parents, but also the church coming alongside, we have to raise kids to understand four things. And this is when I do talks for parents, I hit these four things just briefly. What the Bible teaches, they have to understand that in great depth. Mm-hmm. Not just little stories, right? Yep, Not exactly. just, oh, you know, Noah and the ark and Daniel and the lion's den. No, they have to understand the full arc of the Bible yep. and deeply. Mm-hmm. Number two, why believe it? Why is there good reason to believe it's true? They need to be able to make a case for the truth of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Number three, they need to understand what others believe. So they've got to understand all these things we've been talking about, about the worldviews that are surrounding them, so they're not deceived by them. And then number four, answering challenges. So actually hearing what culture is going to say, specifically so that they can know how to respond. Natasha Crane, um, you did a podcast recently with Elisa Childers, How to Discern a Church Website. Um, when people ask you, uh, first of all, I'd love to know some of the other things you talked about with Elisa. I love you two together. <laughs> what a talk about a power team. Thank but anyway, um, what should people look for? What are the top things when they're not only looking at a church website, but in a, looking for a good church? 
Well, really, the, the only way that you can really know what's going on in church is to visit in person and to go there for a while. But we recognize, when I say we are talking about Elisa and I, when we're talk, talking in this podcast, we recognize that, you know, people have limited time. So you can do some initial filtering when you go and you look on a church website. And the first thing that you want to do is go straight to the What We Believe page or mm-hmm. the Statement of Faith page and see what they have there, because that is probably... One of the most telling things of all that can help you eliminate a church as a prospect from the beginning, if they don't have a What We Believe page, that that would be a giant red flag just as a starting point. Um, but when you go to the What We Believe page, definitely look at what they say about the Bible, because like everything that we have been talking about mm-hmm. in this uh, in this show, if they don't have the right view of the Bible, they're not going to have the right view, most likely, of anything else, because the Bible is God's Word. That's our authority for truth. And so you need to see words like infallible and authoritative and inspired and inerrant in terms of how they yes. refer to the Bible. Amen. And, of course, you want to read everything else about what they say about God and who Jesus is. And so you want to read through that and make sure that they're kind of checking off those very basic boxes. I mean, they should be basic. Unfortunately, they're not. But what, what we find when we go and look at a lot of church websites today, and you go to those What We Believe pages, is that in a lot of cases, they're bypassing those traditional kinds of statements where it talks about, you know, who God is and refers to Scripture and, and the deity of Jesus. And they're just saying things like, you know, what we believe is we believe in community, we believe in love, we believe yep. in compassion. Mm-hmm. Run as far as you can <laughs> from a church that is just kind of summarizing general values they believe in, mm-hmm. because Christianity, first and foremost, is not about values, it's about Jesus and who he is. Yes. So if a church is not making those statements about Jesus and who he is and the nature of the Bible, and they're going straight to some values that they're getting out of it, it's probably a progressive mm-hmm. church. Yeah. You know, I think most people can go to a website, and if they see a giant you know, rainbow flag and things yes. like that, they're going to know, okay, this church is a, an extremely progressive church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think what gets trickier is when you have the churches kind of in the middle ground who are not trying to look like the church that holds the drag queen story hour, but they're also not a church holding to the historic Christian faith. So one of the best tips that I can give people outside of the the statement of faith is to look for the social media accounts Mm -hmm. of the pastor and other pastors on staff, not just the lead pastor, but look at those social media accounts, because even if things seem okay on the website, it doesn't necessarily mean that Mm -hmm. the, the pastor is as solid as you might think. There are a lot of churches that are kind of headed in a progressive direction, but on paper, they will still have a biblically solid statement of faith. And so if you go to their social media accounts, you look at their Facebook or Instagram and their Twitter, look at what they're sharing, the pastor, not Mm. necessarily the official church account. Official church accounts tend to be about events coming up. You're not going to see stuff there usually. But when you look at the pastor, what what kinds of things is he sharing about? That's going to tell you his priorities. And who is he quoting? Who is he sharing? Those are really important. If you see a pastor who's quoting Richard Rohr, for example, oh, or Rob right. Bell, you're going to know, like, this is a yep. problem. Yep. And so <laughs> it's it's interesting because this is something that wouldn't have even been a factor a few years ago. But now we have access to see kind of on what page they're on when we look at their social media. So social media is a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. One other thing, look at the book studies that they're doing on their website. Mm-hmm. Look at the individual ministry pages. What is their women's ministry focused on? Who do they have mm-hmm. as speakers? Because that says a lot mm-hmm. to who they're bringing into the church. Um, look at all those individual pages and check out the youth accounts. If you have uh, parents, 
uh, who are teaching kids to their church, then they're going to want to make sure that these youth leaders are biblically solid, too. So check out their social media. I've seen numerous Mm. problems at churches where you can check out the church, you can check out the head pastor and everything, and that looks fine. But when you look at the youth program, the youth leaders are not necessarily as solid as you would think, given the rest of the church. Well, remember the Barna research came out, and I think youth leaders are only 12% of them have a biblical worldview. Youth pastors. Right. So we understand right. it's, it's, it's not, I mean, it, it, things are clicking. We're starting to understand, okay, right. there are problems. Don't just assume that, right. that your kids are being taught the Bible. And now you can live stream services too. So you don't, you know, it's, it's always better to visit because yeah. you want to get a feel for the worship. What are they singing about? Is it I, That's me, my worship? Is it a big other- <laughs> show? And a bookstore. Do they have a bookstore? Cause, uh, we visited once when we were in Illinois, a, large mega church down there and we made a beeline uh, we passed up the coffee and we went we made a beeline for the bookstore and it was atrocious i mean it was an absolute yeah. train wreck and so you know i know what church you're talking yeah. about yeah yeah don't name any names but. all right oh no, uh, we, we can we, but can. we can yes stand up for the truth we yes can name yes it. it was willow creek and, yeah. and we were down there and we thought hey you know we were overnights so we let's go and oh my goodness yeah um, not surprised yeah. though no and i wasn't surprised i yeah. just wanted to to see for myself with my yeah. own eyes you know but but you can also listen to sermonettes for christianettes on some of the live streaming you know <laughs> is it verse by verse teaching is or it is, is it there topical? some meat or is it topical yeah. or is it stories about you know vacations and okay such? natasha we just have three minutes left and not enough time to really but meryl talked about just briefly worship. I know at some point you and Elisa Childers cover this because she was in the contemporary Christian music scene. Mm-hmm. What can you give us as far as advice on looking at biblical or theologically sound worship music or lyrics in a church? Well, that's really tough because there's a lot of influence of Bethel church, Bethel music yeah. that's coming in yeah. um, to churches and the whole NAR movement, yep. the, the New Apostolic Ugh. Reformation. And so there's a lot of concern about theologically uh, sound lyrics, but unfortunately a lot of times we don't even think about that, right? We just like the the music, we sing along with it. And so that's one of those things that Mm. if you are live streaming the service, you can see what kind of songs they're they're choosing and and you can kind of see if they're if they're picking Bethel types of songs that are problematic and some other organizations that are putting out problematic music. But all of that said, I mean we have to acknowledge too that there's no perfect church. You can have churches that are very biblically solid in every way, but maybe they just have a worship team that isn't so familiar with what's going on with Bethel. Lots of Christians are not familiar with what's going Mm. on in these areas. And so you might see a song where you're thinking, oh, I wish they weren't singing that song. But at the same time, they might be a great church in other ways. So maybe that's an opportunity that you could speak to someone there if that were your own church. We're not going to find a perfect church. Everything, you know, we're, we're all Christians and we're all imperfect. We want to do our best. But you're looking for the giant red flag that really, that's what you want to avoid. Amen. And otherwise, we want to all be part of a body of Christ together and work together to, to do what glorifies God. Amen. Praise God. I didn't think you could do that in 90 seconds or less, but you did. Uh, <laughs> Natasha, thank you. We really appreciate you. And uh, hey, do you have a new book coming out? Are you writing one? Uh, I'll start writing another one in the fall. Okay. All right. Well, we'll look forward to hearing that or oh, reading yeah. that next year. Um, NatashaCrane.com, thank you so much for all the wonderful work you do and mm-hmm. for helping people come back to the authority of Scripture. And uh, God bless your ministry. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you guys. Uh, Thanks, Natasha. All right, guys, uh, tomorrow you will hear Pastor Kevin Minsky and a rebroadcast on the podcast. And 
Just this update on the schedule, he wasn't on, but Friday we've got T.A. McMahon on. Mayor, we're looking forward to talking to T.A. again, so <laughs> that's exciting. Uh, Monday, jumping ahead to just a preview of next week, Alex Newman, one of my favorite international correspondents and journalists and big on the homeschool movement. Alex Newman, Monday. Todd Nettleton, Voice of the Martyrs, on Tuesday. No, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. It's um, Alex is on Tuesday, Todd Nettleton Wednesday, Dr. Andy Woods on Thursday, and Scott Shera on Friday. Um, and we're always open to guest suggestions. So we can't read every book and we can't have every pastor on for their perspective, but we are open to uh, new guests and we try to pepper those in from time to time. So get a hold of us at comments at standupforthetruth.com. Com. Mayor, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back. It's yeah. good having you back. Yeah. Now your, your feet are wet again. We, 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 I think we jumped in both feet today. We covered some controversial topics, and discernment issues tend to always go that way. Yep. But, uh, friends, thank you guys again for sharing the podcast, for praying with us. God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter. 